Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Brew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we pick the brains of 25 of the world's best homebrewers and get their tips, tricks, and secrets right into your little grubby hands. And hey, coming spring, we're also going to be the authors of a brand new book, Simple Homebrew. That's right. So now between the two of us, not only do we write podcasts and write books, uh, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. On today's episode, we're going to, well, we're going to take some of your feedback. I'm going to ask you for some of my help. We're going to tell you a couple things that are happening around the world in the pub. Visit the library real quick just to talk about a really interesting new book that came out. Uh, in the brewery, we're going to talk, well, we're going to talk some firsts and some things from <laughs> down under. We'll be in the Wayback Machine. Yeah, the way, way, way back machine. That's right. And then in the lounge, we get to talk to one of my absolute favorite brewing people, and I think I said that multiple times in the interview, uh, good old Alan Sprints of Hair of the Dog Brewing Company in Portland, Oregon. Uh, sit down with me as we get to taste some of Alan's beers. Man, I was so jealous I didn't get to go along for that one. And then, of course, we'll give you a quick tip, and we'll give you something other, and we'll get you on your day and on your way to a better, brighter, beery future. But before we can do all of that, let's take a minute and listen to these messages from the people who make this show possible. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back. To get started here today, we want to remind you that there's a new episode of The Brew Files Out, episode 40, about session meads with Kylie Gwynn. Kylie's a member of my uh, homebrew club, and she makes a lot of really delicious beverages, and session meads happen to be one of them. Drew kind of like uh, quizzed her about how to do that. Yeah, and she's much more uh, pleasant to talk to than you. Thanks. No problem. And I would highly encourage everybody to go check it out because, hey, you know, sometimes during the summer you want something that's cold, you want something that's fun, and you want something that's different than a beer. I know. Shocking. Heresy. But Kylie, <laughs> that's right. Kylie actually gives you some really good uh, tips and tricks about how she goes about making them, and we even included a recipe on the website. So go and take a look. And our next announcement is, well, you know, we almost forgot. You know what we do every 12 episodes here on Experimental Brewing? Uh, we try and wake up and answer some questions. Indeed. 
And hey, that means next episode, episode 72, is all Q&A, which also means we need your Qs so that we can give you A's. So remember, <laughs> you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on email, you can find us everywhere. Get those questions into questions at experimentalbrew.com. Or, of course, you can always call us and leave a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. That's right. So please, please ask us anything. Uh, well, almost anything. Uh, we also want to remind you about our affiliate sponsor, Brewswag. Go to brewswag.com to get all your, uh, well, uh, a Brewswag. They have uh, things like uh, shirts, hats, all that kind of stuff. So check out brewswag.com when you buy something there. Enter the code experimental and uh, we'll get a little bit of kickback from that. Yeah, exactly. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, well, which we just wrapped up. That's right. We just wrapped up six months of raising money for Habitat for Humanity. And I'm really happy to tell you guys that you raised $1,175 for Habitat for Humanity. That really rocks people. Thank you so much for helping them out, uh, helping us help them out. And now we have a new charity for the next six months, and Drew's going to tell you about that. Yeah, and this one, we're going actually international, but we're going back to two things that we usually like to talk about. You know, one, uh, the military, and two, dogs. We're going to take the money that comes in from our Patreon accounts from our listeners like you, and for the next six months, we're going to gather up some donations for NowZad, which is an organization operating in Afghanistan. They Their tagline is winning the war for animals, and they actually do a couple of great things. They run a shelter in Kabul. They do rescue missions. They actually work with soldiers who rescue a lot of stray dogs in Afghanistan and work with them to either pair them up take them home or get them adopted locally. And they also work with uh, local farmers for better care and treatment of animals as well. So yeah, there we go. It's animals. It's soldiers. It's good stuff. Help us. That's right. Yeah. Help out, increase your karma factor. And speaking of karma, another way that you can help us out is, well, you can help me out. I had a question come in. That's not really a brew question, but came in from somebody looking to sort of help their expanding club with membership management. And so I have a question for those of you out there. Does anybody have a good, less manual way of dealing with your club membership rosters and making membership cards? You know, if you do, like, you know, I mean, in this day and age, you know, everybody's got some .com thing that does something. If you know of any tools, uh, please let me know at drew at experimentalbrew.com. I'll try them out and I'll tell you guys what I think. So uh, I guess now it's that time again, isn't it? Uh, that's right. It's time for feedback. And our piece of feedback for this week comes from Joshua Wicker who says, uh, just writing to say I loved your recent episode on Session Meads. That's right, the last uh, Brew Files episode. I've been thinking of trying to make a mead uh, for quite some time, but I've been hesitant due to the cost of honey. Very glad to hear more info about Session Meads. I also enjoyed the end of the podcast where when you talked about using spices and herbs and beverages. I've been brewing beer and kombucha for the past few years, and I'm always seeking to learn more about what spices, herbs, or flavorings to offer to the brew. If you have more conversations like that, I'll certainly enjoy it. And so, yeah, I think that means we're going to get Kylie back on to talk about uh, some more spices and herbs since she works for a spices and herbs company. Yeah, that's right, man. Uh, she has a wealth of information about that kind of stuff. She's not afraid to experiment uh, after your own heart, and uh, she just makes some delicious stuff. Yep. All right. So I think we have a new show idea. 
let's move on and work the current show. All right. It's time that we head over to the pub, grab a beer, and talk about the beer life. So uh, please stick around. We're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Thanks for sticking around. We're back and we have made our way over to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town on the planet Earth. We are having a beer. What you drinking today, Drew? Well, it's going to come up later in one of the articles that we're going to discuss. But, you know, it seems like recently all I've been drinking is IPA, 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 and something else called IPA. And I was out, and one of my favorite little breweries closest to me is R.T. Rogers Brewing Company. And while I was there, I didn't have a single IPA, but the beer I had that I really, really liked was their Archer's Amber. And all their all their beers are named after fairy tale type characters. And this is the Archer's Amber. And you know what? It was kind of nice to have a malty, toasty beer again. Well, you know what? Guess what I'm drinking? An IPA? The, the lovely Miss Paula went out to the store the other day to uh, buy some beer, and guess what she came home with? An IPA? <laughs> you are absolutely correct. <laughs> she came home with uh, Terminal Gravity IPA from uh, a brewery over in eastern Oregon, Terminal Gravity, uh, a beer that we just absolutely love around here and haven't had for a while. They claim it's an English-style IPA, but boy... To my palate, it's got a lot more bitterness to it than uh, your typical English-style IPA, but it does have a really nice malt character to go with all that bitterness. A, a lovely aroma, um, a great all-around IPA, and you know what, man? Uh, I'm going to keep drinking IPAs. That's fine. I'm still going to drink them, too. It's just nice to have a break. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, true. I mean, we've been getting hot weather around here, so I've been alternating between uh, IPA and uh, that uh, the Shoots Pacific Wonderland. There you go. That's a, yeah, that's a good hot weather beer. I walked into a brewery the other day here in LA when it was a hundred and ten out, and they right. were in a thin little metal warehouse uh, that was built like sometime probably in the thirties. <laughs> no <laughs> ventilation in it, and it felt like you just walked face first into a blast oven. <laughs> You know what? That that uh, reminds me of uh, Solitary in some bad prison movie. Exactly. <laughs> You're going in the hole, Beecham. <laughs> That's right. Okay, let's move on. We want to start off by congratulating our good friends, the Oregon Brew Crew, for winning the Radagast Award. Uh, this is a, an award uh, basically based on public service by a club, and since that's kind of your baby, why don't you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I still prefer the name I gave it originally, which was the Awesome Club of Awesomeness Award. But you would, I would. 
but the the HA wanted something a little more press friendly. The Radagast is all about you know what the clubs do to make themselves really awesome. So it's a charitable component, it's an educational component, it's about membership diversity, it's about reaching out to the community, and it's also just about having a good time too. So this is basically what I like to think of is the club of the year award for people who aren't into entering competitions. And which leads us to the second one. And also congratulations to our good friends over Quaff for taking the uh, Homebrew Club of the Year award again. And this year, man, it was kind of dramatic. It was a three-way tie. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a three-way tie. And they had to bust all the way down to the number of points each of the clubs got in the first round to determine who would actually uh, win Club of the Year. So that's interesting. I didn't think they'd ever had go, go down that far, but they did. But it, it ended up being that Quaff was victorious, and I think this is Quaff's 900th time winning the award. Yeah, I think so, man. It's like uh, not a surprise to anybody when they win again. Nope, but uh, they do a lot of hard work for it, and they, they put a, a lot of things into order. And if you want to hear some of their tips and tricks, go listen to the Brew Files episode that I did with uh, Nick Corona about how he actually makes uh, metal-winning beer and really thinks about strategizing for his competitions. Okay, so uh, now we're going to move on to an article from The Takeout. Uh, called Five Beer Menu Rules I Wish All Bars Would Follow. Now, you have to keep in mind that this is one woman's idea of what she wants, and uh, you may agree with her and you may not, and I agree with some things and not others that she says. Uh, you know, she doesn't like to like long beer menus, you know, and I don't have a problem with that. Uh, her number one complaint is offer a beer list that isn't 75% IPAs. And to that, all I can say is, what about all those people that want beer lists that are 75% IPAs? There's plenty out there for everybody, although uh, she does make a point that uh, sometimes some other styles are kind of like underserved, huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly what I was referencing with the Amber. I, I mean, I agree with her. I like to see a little more diversity on a menu. I, I wanted to go someplace earlier this week for a beer, and I looked at their list, and it was like all either IPAs or massive stouts. <sighs> well, and you know what? And I have shied away from places that don't have any IPAs. Well, so I don't, think anybody's, like, I don't think anybody's arguing no IPAs. Just yeah, not all the IPAs. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, offer a beer list that isn't 75% IPAs that she said. Well, that means that there's 25% of that list is other beers, too. So, yep. uh, I, I do heartily agree with her uh, next one. Uh, list the beer style, not just uh, its name. And she says, I might want to order local beer company's Electric Kitten Revenge, but that name alone doesn't give me anything other than a hunch about the drug preferences of the local beer company. And I agree, you know, if you're going to uh, come up with creative names, at least let us know generally what type of beer it is. And admittedly, there are some beers that don't follow any style, but you know, you could, you could give me a hint at least. Yep. And then other ones, of course, uh, offer a range of ABVs. So just like I was saying about the fact, like, the place I was going to go and then decided not to, it had all IPAs and Imperial Stouts. I mean, it's like, it's nice to have some lower alcohol options in there if yeah. you're going to be sitting there for a while. Yep, and I have to admit that that's a major consideration for me when I go out to a bar these days. I've got a long drive home, and I don't want to sit there and have uh, two or three 8% beers. Yep. Um, offer different size pours. I would love to see that because then I could get an 8% beer, but just a small amount of it, you know? Uh, I know that there are a couple places around here that will do a half pour for you. 
Uh, some of them charge the same as a full. And if I don't want a full pour, I'll pay the price to get a half. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see places that do uh, small pours and charge accordingly for them. See, and that's the funny part for me, at least in California, is at least the bars I go to, yeah, they do offer different size pours. Or at the very least, if they don't offer, like, say, multiple sizes of, of a single drink, all the breweries do. But if a bar doesn't, what they usually will do is put it in the appropriate size glass. One of the things that Kate uh, complains about in the article was being served a full pint of barley wine yeah, <laughs> at one of the bars, which is daunting. My first encounter with barley wine was uh, when I was at the Rogue uh, Public House on the Bayfront in Newport, Oregon. Uh, I looked up at the menu and saw something called Old Crustacean. Had no idea what it was, but I loved the name, so I said, I'll have a pint of Old Crustacean. Mm. And the waitress looked at me and said, Oh, no, sir. We don't serve that in pints. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is not one of the ones the hobbits will be saying. It comes in pints? <laughs> yeah, right. And then I think the last one, uh, the last point that she had, I thought, was really key, which is don't sacrifice quality in favor of locality. Oh, yes. So, in other words, if local beer companies' beers aren't great, you're not doing anybody a service by having them on tap in place of a really great beer that you could have on tap. Yeah. Yep. Although, I mean, I still do like to go local, but I try to go local with the good places. Right. I, I agree. And there are a couple local breweries here that, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. And it, by the way, if you go to the takeout.com, we'll include a link to this particular article. Go and look at uh, Kate's articles. She's a certified beer judge and everything else and actually writes some really good beer education stuff for people who are relatively new to beer. Right. And remember, this is her opinion. You're welcome to your own. So uh, if you have your own uh, beer menu rules, let's hear them. Send them in to podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Yeah. What, what makes a, a good beer bar for you? Right. I know what makes a bad one. I'll tell you, my, my main one is places that don't clean their tap lines. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's definitely right up there. No doubt about it. Uh, people. All right. And then the ne- next one, this is a story that is also near and dear to the podcast heart. You guys will remember a couple episodes back, we had uh, Herbie from Simsy's up on the podcast talking about his second store brewery. Well, he's back in the news, but this time for a bear. <laughs> Yeah, man, this is really cool. There was going to be an event, and they needed to make a beer to benefit the L.A. Zoo, and they actually let the bear pick the ingredients to some degree. Yeah, so what they did was they set out a couple of different samples of various ingredients, and they basically took the two ingredients that uh, and the, the list was hibiscus, sage, lemongrass, blueberries, mixed nuts, and oranges uh, in Ranger's pen, uh, Ranger the bear, and let him uh, basically choose. And so this is going to be a shocker. Honey. Honey was chosen. And then also the <laughs> hibiscus flowers. So they're going to put together a beer. And it's going to be for uh, for the brew at the L.A. Zoo, which is a big festival they put on every year. But that's going to be Simsy's special uh, beer for the event. And, and let me just say that uh, I think that that bear had more sense about ingredient selection than a lot of home brewers do sometimes. Indeed. I think it's just because the bear is driven by the nose. And then, of course, our good friends at uh, <laughs> ABI are back in the news, but uh, this time for something a little sour. Uh, you guys will remember that ABI, or uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev, has been born of multiple mergers, including the first one, which was Interbrew. Uh, Interbrew was a Belgian beer company that then merged with uh, American beverages down in South America, and that became Ambev, and now they became ABI. Well, back in the Interbrew's days, 
Interbrew was famous for going around buying up a lot of Belgian breweries, and one of the ones that they bought years ago was Bellevue, which was a Lambic producer. And, well, those Lambics kind of went away and they became something else, and the Bellevue products haven't really been seen much, but it's now in the news that ABI is reviving the Bellevue line, their selection Lambics in particular, and... Yeah, that's kind of an interesting move. Not something I would think Anheuser-Busch would be doing. Yeah, um, and there's a little controversy about it because uh, some people claim they're not following the traditional process, which would be okay, except that they claim to be following the traditional process. The article quotes uh, Frank Bone, who uh, is the chair of uh, the organization that kind of uh, certifies traditional lambics, uh, Horl. Yeah, the high, yeah, the Horl, the High Council for Traditional Lambic Beers. I know, I just love that, man. It's just, it's something like straight out of Harry Potter or something. I, I was going to say, I feel very Tolkien saying that. Yeah, right. He said that his fear is that uh, this Lambic could be imposed on uh, beer lists in, in ABI-tied houses, uh, forcing independent Lambic brewers out in the process, kind of the same thing we've seen ABI do with uh, breweries here in the U.S., but he was also coy, non-committal uh, about if they would be allowed to join the uh, the Horal organization itself. And I, I just love his comment here. There has not been a demand from them to join Horal yet, so the problem does not exist today. <laughs> I, I love that man. Talk, talk about diplomacy. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and then he follows it up by saying the AL in Horal uh, means artisanal lamb lambic. So I think the size of the business will be a subject of discussion in case of a demand. Yeah, right. So hmm. we'll just we'll just see. Uh, but I really like the fact that he just kind of says, you know, they haven't asked, so we ain't going to go there. There you go. All right. Well, I think that's all the beery news we have to cover today. I think so, too, man. So let's uh, finish up these beers and uh, make a quick stop in the library on our way to the brewery. And uh, we'll be right back and tell you about some geography in brewing. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. So, we've made our way over here to the brewery. We're sitting amongst the books in these comfy leather chairs. And we're going to talk about a new book called The Atlas of Beer that examines the role that geography plays in brewing. Uh, and it's written by two professors, you know, so two PhD candidates all about maps and, you know, specifically about the idea of, you know, beer's influence on the world. Garrett Oliver has some tips and a foreword in there. Uh, but the BA interview was actually kind of interesting for, you know, like, hey, you know, Exactly how does geography influence, you know, beer? And it turns out, well, geography influences a lot. And 
to me, they also call out that, you know, now people are actually traveling for beer. They're actually, you know, seeking out the local beers because that's a thing, you know, that you do now. And the, my favorite question though is what's one of your favorite examples of how beer has influenced culture. And the answer is as geographers, our favorite example of this is represented well in Jon Snow's 1854 cholera map. Now we've talked about Jon Snow in experimental brewing back uh, a while back. So Jon Snow is a, a, a favorite of ours. And no, this is not the Jon Snow from Game of Thrones. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Jon Snow's 1854 cholera map. At the time, there was an outbreak in London of cholera, a waterborne bacterial disease that kill, can kill within hours if untreated. Yeah, it's a nasty disease. Uh, Snow mapped the residents of people who contracted the disease and geographically identified a communal water pump as the origin of the outbreak. Yeah, basically there was a break between where the water pump was drawing water and sewage, uh, a sewage line right next to it. And I think there was also dead bodies involved. (laughs) (laughs) Yummy. Yeah. And he said, however, he also found another geographic trend. Residents near a brewery that uh, that did not contract cholera. Indeed, the brewery workers and local patrons drank beer in lieu of water source and as a result remained cholera-free. Well, there you go. You know, and I, but, I, I've got to say that reading through this review of the book, there's, there's nothing in there that's really earth-shattering, but getting all of this information together in one place so you can kind of see the correlation between different things is what's really fascinating. Yeah, and I also really like the fact that they do talk about that case because it is one of the prime examples of the earliest idea of epidemiology. So really cool. Cool. indeed. Okay. So go get the Atlas brewing, check it out, uh, learn more beer history. Meanwhile, we're going to wander over to the brewery and uh, talk about some beers that I've made. So uh, stick around. We're going to be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Boil, toil, and trouble. We're in the brewery. <laughs> Things are burbling. It's good times. Let's talk the magical alchemy that is brewing beer. And we're going to do that by, well, uh, by gazing deep into the pools of time. And <laughs> Deep into and the pools go- of time. I like that. Yeah. So, Dencenzo, for the, for the book that we've been writing, you had to go pull up some old, old history. So, why don't you tell the audience what you found? Yeah, um... During the, the writing of our most recent book, uh, Simple Homebrew, you can get it in the spring, um, I had mentioned uh, brewing my first beer, an alt beer, and our editor said, well, how, why don't we put the recipe for that beer in there? Which meant I had to go dig through all these notebooks that I've got and see if I could find it. And sure enough, there it is on February 27th, 1999. 
Alt One, a two and a half gallon batch. It was my first all grain recipe and also my first batch sparge. I'd been doing some partial mash brews before then, but I'd been fly sparging those. And, uh, you know, this is the beer that really got me addicted to brewing and all grain brewing, especially. This beer turned out better than I ever had any reason to believe that it would. And just real quickly, it was uh, three pounds of a generic pale malt, three pounds of Great Western uh, Munich malt, the 10 Lover Bond, two ounces of chocolate malt, two ounces of 80 Crystal, an ounce of Spalter Select hops, and Y-East 1338, a German ale yeast that is not made any longer. Too bad. I really like that yeast. And as I recall, everything went really pretty smoothly with this. I had a uh, little six-gallon cooler that looked a bit like R2-D2 that I had outfitted with a sure screen and used that as my mash tun. Uh, I fermented it in the house. I think it was probably like, oh, close to 70 degrees for the primary fermentation. But then uh, being cold here at that time of year, I stuck it outside for two or three weeks and man, that beer got so clear and crisp. I still remember now the first taste and what, what a wonderful surprise it was that it turned out that well. So anyway, uh, if you're interested in trying to recreate it, we'll put the recipe up on the website. Uh, we'll put a picture even from my recipe notebook so you can uh, see what it was like back then for me. Wait, how, how many notebooks do you have? Uh, without having them here in front of me, I would say that I probably am up to 10 or 11 now. You know, they're kind of kind of like the the small spiral uh, notebooks, you know, like a, a class notebook or something like that. Um, and... You know, I just keep filling them up and starting another one. Here's the important question. Would you change anything from what you did on that batch if you were going to redo it today? You know, um, I, I don't think so. But it's been a long time since I tasted it. And you know how that works. You know, it, it may be uh, different than you actually remember it. If I was going to brew this recipe again today, I'd probably use Pilsner malt instead of the pale malt. But I'm not even sure that would make a detectable difference if I did. And what do you think you'd do about the yeast? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, in the book, I said uh, use Y yeast 10007, uh, the current German ale yeast. It's a little crisper and less malty and full-bodied than the 1338. So I might actually do a little research and try and see if I can come up with something close to that. But, you know, again, hindsight, right? Indeed. And now, of course, we have to break into current brewing. You know, now that we've been all the way back in, uh, what was that, 1999? Yep, 1999. Yeah, let's, uh, let's fast forward nearly 20 years. Right. So uh, about a week ago, uh, some friends from New Zealand joined me for a brew session. They had come over to go to uh, Homebrew Con in Portland and came down and spent a couple days here in Eugene. Afterwards, we uh, went out and hit good old Ale Song, my favorite brewery. And then they came out uh, on the, the day after that. And we did a brew session. They had brought along, let me see, 400 grams, nearly a pound of hops from New Zealand. They had brought 100 grams each of uh, Motueka, Kohatu, Nelson Savin, and Rewaka, or Rewaka, as the pronunciation appears to be. Gesundheit. Thank you. Um, and so what we did was I crushed up my uh, typical grist for my rye IPA using all mecha-grade malts. 
Uh, because I had just gotten back from the conference, I didn't have time to make a decent starter of 1450. So I pulled out a couple packs of good old Saflogger 3470 and we used that. So basically what we made is a Kiwi Rye India Pale Lager. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Say that three times fast. Yeah, right. Uh, it was a, an interesting brew day, uh, and uh, we'll kind of get into that a little bit later on the quick tip. But despite all of that, uh, the beer seems to have turned out really well. After uh, uh, four days of fermentation at 65, I cranked the temperature up to about 70, 72 for a few days. I uh, then crashed it back down to 33 to clear up the beer. Uh, I took a gravity sample and a taste when I was doing that. And darn, this is going to be really, really a good beer. It's interesting. We used five ounces of the 14 ounces, I guess, total that we had in the beer itself. And uh, the Kiwi guys are encouraging me to use the entire other nine ounces to dry hop the beer. And I just haven't decided if I'm that brave or uh, or if I, I actually want to save them and make another beer out of them. But I, I don't think bravery has anything to do with it. Yeah, I'm I'm leaning towards going with their wishes and putting everything in as dry hops, you know, Um and hoping that maybe somehow I can get them some of this beer to taste, but it was uh, it was an interesting experiment, and it appears that it's going to be a successful experiment, uh, blending cultures like that in more ways than one. <laughs> and well, and we'll get back to that uh, a little bit later in the quick tip. But I think for now, I think for now, it's time for us to go on. Yeah, that's right, man. Let's head over to the lounge and listen to this killer interview you did with Alan Sprintz from Hair of the Dog. So stick around. We're going to be right back with that. Savor some of Yeast's exclusive Belgian strains with the Belgische Zomer private collection this summer. Backed by popular demand, the Forbidden Fruit, Trappist-style blend, and the Canadian-Belgian ale strains encompass the entire spectrum of yeast properties and are distinguished by their coveted ester and phenolic profiles. Take advantage of these strains to brew a full range of Belgian styles, from traditional everyday drinking to the bigger and more complex. The versatility of this collection is perfect for savoring all summer long. These strains are available July through September at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at brewerspublications.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer, beer. 
We have moved over to the lounge, and we are lounging here. Uh, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and uh, check out this interview. Yeah, and just to set the context for this, this was the very first day of Homebrew Con. Uh, just before everything was getting started, I made my way over to the Hair of the Dog Pub and got to sit down with Alan. Uh, Alan has been <laughs> running Hair of the Dog Brewing Company in a weird little way since you know the early 90s, and he has a very unique outlook on, well, just exactly how to brew and what you should do while you're brewing. And also, I got to try some really amazing beers while I was there, and we talk about them on the podcast. So which beer do we have in front of us? Fred from the Wood, uh, 2013. 2013. Did I ever tell you about the time that uh, Sam down at the Stuff Sandwich served me, like, I think it was Adam Batch 4. <laughs> he, he gave me, a friend of mine and I were supposed to split uh, bottles of Adam. We went in and said, hey, can we get some old hair of the dog? And he came out with four bottles, one Batch 4 and three Batch 5s. And we said, Sam, there's a problem. And he's like, what? I said, you brought us one bottle of four and we're, or one Batch 4, we're going to split these. He's like, I know. I want to see you guys fight over who got it. <laughs> Unfortunately, that was a stinker year, <laughs> or a batch, the batch four. We did 10 batches in the first year, and that was the no carbonation. It was a tough one. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, after... It held up? Yeah, after, you know, whatever that was, like 15, 18 years, it was still pretty good. All right, so we got Fred from the Wood. How big is this? 10% alcohol. Uh, we put it in new barrels, so we're really not gaining any alcohol from the barrels. Usually we'll gain 2% in a bourbon barrel. But uh, this beer spent about a year in the wood before uh, we packaged it. And these are the barrels uh, right here. Oh, yeah. And uh, so everybody who's listening on the podcast, welcome to the podcast. We had beer in front of us, so we had to talk about it. And, yeah, we are currently sitting in the back room of Hair of the Dog Brewing Company here in lovely Portland, Oregon. And, you know, we've got these wonderful little uh, glasses and, of course, I'm sitting next to one of my favorite brewers. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? <laughs> well, my name is Alan Sprentz, and thanks for the kind words. <laughs> um, I own Hair of the Dog Brewing Company. Uh, started it uh, at the end of 93. Um, right now, we're approaching uh, 100 batches on uh, Adam and Fred, uh, and uh, that's a lot of bottling. <laughs> I was going to say. Well, and... I think the first time I encountered you guys was when I first started to come up for uh, OBF, Oregon Brewers Fest, and you had the special parties in your old location, and we were talking earlier about the memories of walking into that sort of dilapidated warehouse and realizing that there was this giant malt silo, which is now hidden over in the corner, that just dominated the entrance, and then a teeny tiny little kettle. <laughs> well, we still have that same tiny kettle. Yep. Um, sitting, right, uh, sitting right over there. There's something nice about being able to brew, and uh, larger equipment, we just be able to brew less. And so a normal brew day for us is five brews in one day. Uh, two people split the shift. Uh, it's a lot of work, but uh, I think that really is the heart of beer. Uh, it's, it's not easy. It is a lot of work to make beer. To, uh, tell people who don't know the story, the story of the kettle. Uh, originally, it came from uh, a soup company. We're not really sure whether it was making soup or... Or frying tortillas or what but uh, I came from the food service industry and so I'd worked with steam kettles before uh, working in the brewing industry you work with a lot of direct fired equipment which is hot and noisy mm -hmm. so I really kind of wanted something that was quiet uh, and these are definitely more energy efficient so it's more expensive to get into a steam system but to run it is less money uh, so we've been real happy with it over the years 
Well, and is the colander still around, or is the colander? Yeah, yeah, it's on top of the cooler over there. The <laughs> the kettle actually came with a strainer, uh, which uh, I have plans or had plans to make a light out of that we'd hang over the the people in the tasting room. And who knows, that might still happen one of these days. Yeah, I just I just remember it being screwed up on the wall. Hmm. Uh, yeah, we had it hanging from the ceiling for quite a while. Um, one of those weird things you get when you're starting a brewery. Well, so. Tell, uh, tell the folks more about uh, Fred from the Wood. Like, uh, first, Fred, obviously. And then Fred the is a, or was a beer writer who lived here in Portland, Oregon, and he was a big inspiration for me. A member of our homebrew club used to come with a six-pack of beer, and at that time, everybody got a taste of what he was bringing. Um, homebrew club has grown quite a bit since those days, and now your corny cake disappears faster than you'd believe it. Uh, but Fred always had interesting stories and was just a really uh, special kind of person. So I wanted to do something special to say thank you to Fred and talk to him about what kind of ingredients he liked. Uh, and hops were a big thing with Fred, uh, and rye malt was also interesting. So I kind of made a strong Belgian ale with lots of hops, uh, and we called it Fred. And the beer we're drinking is Fred from the Wood, so it's been aged in new American oak barrels for about a year after mm-hmm. fermentation. Uh, and it gives the beer some of those wood qualities that people might associate with bourbon, uh, vanilla, uh, mm-hmm. coconut, but actually the barrels are brand new. Well, and I also get that very strong uh, sandalwood, you know, that kind of that very spicy, woody mm-hmm. uh, character to it. And some of that might be the Belgian candy sugar. Mm-hmm. It kind of has a toffee kind of quality to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, then reinforced by the rye and a couple of other things in there. Mm-hmm. And now... Uh, what, Fred passed away two, three years ago? Yeah, two years ago. Two years ago. But you still continue to hold a party. Right. We have a birthday party for him every year in May. His birthday is May 10th, and so we try to get it as close to his birthday as possible. Mm-hmm. And we're real fortunate that we're able to raise some serious money for some great charities. Yeah. Uh, we normally raise between twelve and $15,000 uh, with a few hundred people. Yeah. And uh, by the way, folks, if you don't know the Fred that we're talking about, Fred Eckhart, he is really, at least in the American beer world, as foundationally important to my mind as Michael Jackson in terms of getting people to pay attention and actually treat beer as a serious subject. Yeah, and what a special time hearing both of those guys talk uh, at the same uh, beer tasting. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. So let's talk. You said you were in uh, in the culinary world. You came up to Portland to, to do that. And so how do you go from, I'm going to be a chef, to, you know what sounds good? Sweating over a kettle and making beer. Well, um, you know, being a professional chef sounded the same way. I'm going to be famous and make a lot of money and not have to work too hard. But the reality is that you work nights and weekends and holidays, and you work very hard, and there's a lot of stress. And so I was thinking that becoming a brewer would be less stressful. And uh, (laughs) Do you you still think that (laughs) this many years later? I started working at another brewery, uh, had regular hours, and so my hours were much better. I was filling kegs. Um, five days a week, and then I graduated to becoming a brewer and worked seven at night till three in the morning. So I was back to those lousy hours and really wasn't making much money and thought that, you know, if this is what I'm going to have to do, then I'd rather do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided I'd start Hair of the Dog. So now, how did, back in the day before anybody had, I mean, Portland obviously had breweries at the time, craft breweries, independent breweries. Um, but not, it wasn't a thing like it is now. So, how do you how do you go about getting the money together to get a 
a steam kettle and a place and the gear and well i guess the biggest thing you have to have is uh um uh, you have to be naive you really if you know what you're doing you're probably not going to do it and so i really had no idea what i was up against and i thought that uh, getting a little bit of money together to get some equipment and we could sell some beer and the rest would just be downhill and it was probably almost 17 years before i got a regular paycheck and so it was a lot of sacrifice, uh, a lot of hard work, and uh, we could have gone out of business uh, many, many places along the way. Uh, but I really believed in what we were doing, and I really enjoyed the whole making beer, creating something. And I think that is the lesson to take home, is you really have to enjoy what you're doing, mm-hmm. and you can't just do it uh, to make money. Yeah. Well, I, it's the same thing that Denny and I say to people all the time. You know, we get asked hey, why don't you guys open up a brewery? You know, why do you do that? And like, because I like my hobby. I don't, I don't necessarily know I want to turn it into something where I have to sweat over it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is a thing because you, you do have to be committed. You have to kind of be partially insane. And you have to be willing to do a lot of sacrifice in order to actually get it moving. Yeah, it's more than just drinking beer and having a good time. I know. Although, if it was just drinking beer and having a good time, I'd be all over it. <laughs> you know? Fortunately, there's that to be had to, though. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, uh, drinking the uh, Fred from the Wood, it reminds me, I mean, we go around to a lot of breweries these days, and, you know, you see kind of the sort of the standard styles, you know, everybody's got, like, their flight of IPAs, everybody's got, like, here's your little thing that you can drink that, you know, is not going to be too offensive to the, you know, American lager drinkers, and, oh yeah, we got these special things that are unique, esoteric, big, and sort of gargantuan, and one of the things... And at least ever since I first became aware of you guys, it always seems like okay, yeah, you've got a few a few things out there. We just had the little dog as a as a mild, uh, but the things that it feels like I've always known you guys for are things like Fred, Adam, Doggy Claws, those sort of big uh, bigger special event type beers. So, was that your intention when you got started to kind of do that, like be be sort of event beer like a special beer well they were the kind of beers that i enjoyed drinking uh when i was a teenager all my friends were trying to see how much beer they can drink and it was more of a a contest about quantity and i never liked that full feeling you get when you drink lots of beer so i discovered early on that if you drank higher alcohol beer you didn't have to drink as much Mm -hmm. and you got the same feeling so when i was thinking about a brewery here in portland um, I thought that there was enough people making regular beer that if I made special beer, we'd have a place in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the breweries would do those kind of beers, but usually only at holiday time. They'd make a small amount of a barley wine mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, unfortunately, most people aren't looking for those kind of beers, and so it was tough to sell a 10% alcohol beer in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have refrigeration for uh, a few years when we started, and getting people to bottle for us, we enticed them with beer and pizza. But drinking warm Adam and pizza, a lot of people <laughs> passed out about halfway through the bottling. Yeah, it strikes me as a recipe for an unreliable workforce. Uh, but I really enjoy uh, the complex flavors you get with higher alcohol beers. Mm-hmm. Coming from a culinary background, I love the way that food and beer go together. And I think the higher alcohol beers um, can blend with more types of food well so now after all of these years of running a brewery and being in the brewing industry and seeing where breweries have gone since you opened i mean obviously 
going from being one small player in a in in the pond to now suddenly like there's a lot of players in the pond. Do you still find yourself you know attracted mostly to things like Fred and Adam those big those bigger beers or have your tastes shifted over time? Well, as I've gotten older, I'm not able to drink as much strong mm-hmm. beers as I used to be. Uh, I definitely love the strong beers still, but I find myself drinking some lighter beers uh, on a regular course. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I went to Belgium, I imagined that everybody, all the Belgians, drank uh, Trappist beers and Lambic beers all day long. And the reality was they drink Pilsners most of the time. Jupilee and Stella Trois. Um, and so I think there's a lot to be said for uh, the regular strength beers. And so that's why we're making more of those now. Uh, we've just released a triple IPA, and it's kind of going back the other way. Um, but uh, the Little Dog is great, and uh, I've been enjoying some lagers for some other breweries. Uh, well, uh, on your Belgian note, I remember when I went over there for the first time, uh, 2001, our bus driver, because that's it, a good idea to have a bus driver if you're with a little group of people so that uh, nobody's having to sit out anywhere. It, Rudy was absolutely amazed that it, all these crazy Americans had come over to his country to go taste beer because the only thing he knew about Belgian beer was Jubilee and Stella. And then as we were walking through all these different breweries, he was like, oh, my God. And since then, he's actually gone on to become sort of a, a Belgian beer, beer expert. He started to explore his culture. He's like, this is amazing. I didn't know this existed. So that's really good. Yeah, that whole uh, feeling of discovery, I think, is really special. And so education has been a big part of what I've been trying to do, teach people that beer can be something that they haven't experienced. Mm-hmm. And so making strong beers, uh, unique beers, has really helped uh, exemplify that. Do we want to uh, pop up on it? Uh, I think we do. Yeah. You finished before I did, but I, I did. Think, uh, I drink fast. I think Maya's next. Maya, Maya, Maya. Maya. So we're very fortunate to be able to do a collaboration with a Swedish brewery, Omnipolo. And uh, we created a, a vanilla maple bourbon barley wine. Uh, and I was looking for a woman's name. We don't have enough women's names in the beers. And so Maya, I think, is the second most popular Swedish name. Uh, Elsa was the first, but I thought Maya was a, just a slight bit more beautiful than Elsa. And so uh, Maya with a J, it is. There we go. And well, so this might be the most expensive beer we've ever produced. Well, and Omnipolo is, I mean, they're, they're known for a lot of crazy things. You know, they've got milkshake beers and other sorts of just goofy things that they're doing. So this almost, from my, repu- my reputational understanding of them, this almost seems tame in a way. Well, though. and I think that people are surprised with the flavor. With the description, you expect it to be um, very sweet and overly vanilla, but everything really is in balance. It's um, almost tame. Yeah. Um, the delicious beer. Well, I mean, it, the very first thing I get, the maple to me comes across as a smokiness. You know, it's a, it, the, the smokiness of the wood. The vanilla, I mean, I, I don't get the vanilla at least so much in the aroma, except for maybe as a little bit of that leathery component. And then in the flavor, where I would think that you'd get all that sweetness and get that sort of compounding of our brains interpreting vanilla as sweet, what I get is, yeah, I get some of that vanilla sweetness, but then it's immediately sort of rushed away by sort of a nice bracing bitterness behind it. Yeah, but again, that bitterness isn't isn't overwhelming. It's not sitting there designed to you know take your teeth out. 
it but it does bring the whole beer to sort of a a very clean finish and yeah i'm real happy with the way it, it turned out yeah no i would uh i'd be super stoked by this one so we have another batch of it in barrels now uh You'll see on, on these barrels next to us, they mm-hmm. first held Fred from the wood, and now they have Maya in them. Nice. So now let's, uh, let's talk about uh, the whole balance thing, because listeners of the podcast will know that one of my favorite questions to ask brewers is, describe to me your brewing philosophy, omitting the word balance. My brewing philosophy? Well, I, I usually like to tell people I have a seat of the pants brewing philosophy. Uh, I am very willing for the product to turn out the way it turns out. We don't do a lot of tasting in the barrels. Uh, I um, think that the beers need at least a year of age, and Mm -hmm. so we don't taste them at all before a year's time. Um, A lot of brewers, I think, do a lot of tasting, and when the beer uh, is the way they want it to be, then they release it. Mm -hmm. But I think that beers have their own uh, life and their own thoughts and they will be what they'll be so i like to give them enough time so it's time to time to breathe it's time to mature time to breathe time to become what what they will be um with our ipas uh i don't really want to confuse my consumers by releasing 20 different ipas and so up to this point our ipa has been called blue dot we've been making it for 18 years the malt bill is the same as it was at the beginning but the hops can change on every brew Mm-hmm. and it's fun for the brewer to use different ingredients. I don't know if the consumer really can tell the difference between each batch. If you have them next to each other, it'd be more apparent, um, but I guess I'm a little looser and freer that way than, than some brewers. We're not definitely tied to one hop for one beer. So would it be fair to say then that you look at the name as the general guideline, like drive the general expectation? Because, I mean, after all, we're not trying to make – Every glass of, you know, say Schlitz tastes like Schlitz. You know, you're now you're getting into that world where you're like, Blue Dot is an impression. It should give you an an idea. idea. Yes, yeah. I think for me, Blue Dot is a beer that is full Mm -hmm. of hopped flavor, without being overly bitter. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if I remember correctly, because it's been a while since I've had it, since unfortunately you don't make it down to Southern California anymore. Mm. Uh, It also has sort of a a caramel backbone to it. Uh, there's a there's a nice bit of color to it. At least the, the the first batches I remember, and then that'll set you up for you know the hops. So it's a little bit more kind of classical IPA. And some of, some of that color actually came from the hops. Surprisingly enough, they do oxidize as they mm-hmm. age. And originally, when I started making Blue Dot, we were using pellet hops and adding those to the fermenter, mm-hmm. and they would settle, and we'd rack the beer off the top and. When the beer was young, I think it was uh, just like I would like it. But mm-hmm. as it aged and those hops started to oxidize, it changed color and became darker. And if that beer sat around for two months or three months, it was noticeably darker and almost unpleasant for well, me from what I originally had imagined. And that, that might explain why I, I have it in my head as a darker beer, because by the time it would have gotten down, down to Southern California in the bottles... And knowing that I was probably buying it at Trader Joe's, where they treated all their beer warm. One thing I hate about Trader Joe's. Good um, stuff on the beer, yeah. Yeah, I could totally see, see that happening. So we've changed the way we dry hop our beers. And we have a new tank 
this tank over here, uh, I call it the Hoptopus. <laughs> it uh, holds about 70 pounds of whole leaf hop. And then we can recirculate the beer from the fermenter through the hops and back in the fermenter. Mm -hmm. So the leaves of the hops actually act as a filter and filter mm -hmm. out some of that yeast. We get clear beer, more stable, and we don't have the color change that we had when we we're using pellet hops. Nice. And, that, and that's the, the thing that looks like the overgrown pressure cooker here? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah it, it is kind of terrifying. It's got clamps all around the wazoo, you know, like big black knobby clamps like a pressure cooker. And yeah, I can only imagine. I can't imagine making our, our dry hop beers without it anymore. used to be we would let the hops settle, and so it would take yeah. two or three weeks for the hops to settle. Now we can do hopping in 24 hours, mm -hmm. and uh, we get a much, I think, more tropical fruit flavor uh, instead of pine and citrus. Well, I was going to say, the, the, that seems to be a thing that is more common now in commercial breweries, to have sort of either some way of doing a dry hop circulation or a hop injection type thing. You know, you see it, I had to laugh when we were at 21st Amendment or at Firestone Walker, you know, seeing them have these uh, almost essentially CO2 powered hop guns to hop inject cannons. Them. Yeah. They're thousands of pounds of hops. Yeah. Yeah. Because nobody wants to climb that many stories to get to the top of the fermenter. By the way, I, I just want to say, I mean, even as we're continuing to drink the, the Maya here, I mean, for something that says vanilla maple barley wine, you know, again, to your point about the sweetness aspect that people are expecting, it's not building at all. It's not building that cloyness. It's, it's just hanging out. It's, it's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so now, obviously, you're known for doing crazy things. <laughs> right? These crazy high-alcohol uh, high beers, these sort of special event beers, What's the craziest thing that you've ever done? Well, I guess from a brewer's standpoint, uh, we made a beer where we did two mashes uh, mm -hmm. and only first runnings from both mashes. But we couldn't fit two mashes in the kettle, so we had to boil the first one down far enough where we could fit the second one in. So I think it was a 20-hour boil. Oh, yeah. uh, it was a, a lot of work. Uh, for a little more gravity. and When you say a little more gravity, do you remember like, roughly how much? I, I think we were 11.30, somewhere in that, that ballpark. Um, but I think 11.20 is fine. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be 11.30. <laughs> and so we can hit 11.20 with a little bit of sugar mm -hmm. and not have to put in. Our average boil time is three hours, which is more than most brewers, but we are making stronger beers, so we're trying to concentrate those sugars, and that helps. Well, and that's amazing because, I mean, your kettle is open-faced and wide open-faced. You have a large, you know, uh, surface area, interaction area. And then you've got that big hood up above there to catch, uh, to catch everything. So, I mean, three hours, what is, what is your boil off rate? What's the boil? The, the boil off rate. Boil, uh, probably 10% an hour. 10%. Wow. But we're trying to hit, you know, 1,100 gravities, and mm. uh, it's not necessarily easy to do with just yeah. barley. Um, so the longer gravities help, or the longer boils help with the gravities. And they also, when I started, I worked by myself. And so doing five brews in a row by yourself, mm -hmm. you need nap time. Mm -hmm. And having a three-hour boil, once that beer comes to a boil, you don't have to do anything for like a good hour. Mm -hmm. And so you have a nap time. So I was able to take naps on a regular basis, and that's why I designed the beers the way they are, 
it helps with the gravity, but it also helps with my sanity. Very important. Yeah, and we've been talking recently on the podcast a lot about uh, mental health for brewers. So scheduling some downtime is not a bad thing, particularly if you're sort of a one-man show. Yeah, being small is tough. You're competing with a lot of very large companies. Mm -hmm. And so I had to do what I had to do to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, that was part of it. If you're going to go into the business and be, you know, like in the space that you're in, you know, I mean, you're in a niche. So you got to kind of expect, I mean, because... I mean, you think about, like, look at, like, Stone, right? I mean, Stone started in 96. You started in 93. Stone's grown huge, but Stone does sort of more regular beers. Like, your, your, your space is all focused around, you know, sort of more special beers. You know? And thinking about, like, the number of breweries right now that are making their growth on sort of, like, you know, call back to the previous discussion about your IPA being the same, no matter what you're doing with it. You get all these IPA breweries now that I think of as IPA breweries where they're pushing out 10, 20 different IPAs in like a quarter and all of them are just varying on the hops really, but they're also bringing in a lot of money. Have you ever, have you ever looked at that and kind of gone, yeah, we could kind of do some of that. You definitely think about that over the years. Uh, you know, uh, is contract brewing, uh, an option? Um, do we want to make something that is just going to sell? Um, but you have to be careful what you wish for, mm-hmm. and you have to live with your decisions. And I got into this business because I love making something, and so having it contract brew kind of cuts out that enjoyment of, of manufacturing it. Um, I don't have any problems with breweries that do that, mm-hmm. um, but for me, it, it's a kind of personal relationship with the product. And so I'm more interested in making beer than selling it. I don't really want to have to uh, have a um, crew of salesmen that are out there pushing my product. Mm-hmm. And so we're just big enough where we can make a living. We can pay all our employees. Uh, we're definitely not the biggest brewery, mm-hmm. um, but we are happy. Right. So that's something that I don't hear from a lot of the bigger breweries. Yeah. And I know one of my favorite local breweries, or local to me, they started making a pre-prohibition lager about 15 years ago. And it wasn't part of their original mission scope, right? You know, they were the same sort of thing. Hey, let's do some fun stuff. Let's, let's play around. They, they released that pre-prohibition logger, and now it's kind of, in a way, their, their savior and their curse, right? <laughs> they don't want to brew it, but they have to brew it because it brings money into the brewery to keep the brewery operational. And they're still small. And they're like, Rrr. So, I mean, it, it sounds like so far you're really resisting that temptation. Even though out in the tap room right now, you have a Keller beer on. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, you're still playing around in that space. You're just not making it your thing. And a lot of the people that come here, that's the only kind of beers they drink. They don't really want the strong beers, but they're a minority. Most of the people that come here are coming here for alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so we've tried to uh, make lighter beers. Uh, Little Dog is usually around 3.2% alcohol, and we sell it for half the price of uh, the other beers. Mm-hmm. And it's still uh, our, probably our slowest selling beer. So some people, they love it, and that's all they drink, and I'm, I'm happy that we can provide something for them. Um, but you have to make something for everybody. L- listeners of the podcast will know that uh, I'm well acquainted with the difficulties of selling anything called mild <laughs> and how much I lament that fact because it's arguably my favorite style. I'd love to release a, a session IPA, mm-hmm. and we will release one on draft, but putting it in the bottle... We're not going to be able to charge as much as we can for the double or triple IPA, mm-hmm. and it's going to cost almost as much to produce it. 
Mm-hmm. So should we really spend that much effort making something that we're really not going to make that much money on? So you got a blue dot, you got a green dot. So is the, would the session one be a red dot? So you have RGB? Polka dot. Polka dot. There we go. So it makes you dance. <laughs> nice. And of course now, uh, listeners, because we are uh, made our way through the uh, Maya, uh, what do we have now? We have a side-by-side. Okay. So another collaboration beer. Uh, it's been very rewarding to be able to work with brewers from other places. And we do a lot of collaborations with brewers from Europe or Asia. Mm-hmm. And this is a collaboration with a brewer from uh, Europe and Asia. So we have uh, De Molen from Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And we have Shigakonen from Japan. Lovely. They were both here. Uh, we each produced a beer that we normally make in our own breweries, use the yeast that we normally use in our own breweries, but fermented them all together in the same fermenter. So it's like blending before fermentation. Oh, so, so you're getting a wort blend together, mm. and then all the three yeast then? Went so, in the same fermenter. Nice. So nice little, nice little pre-blend collaboration there. And, I mean, it's this lovely, you know, lovely little beer here with uh, you know, these really sort of dark tones to it and a nice little head. And uh, Helen Verdomus was the beer from Demolin, mm-hmm. and uh, that beer has a lot of brown malt in it, so it has a real roasty kind of rich flavor. Uh, the beer is very uh, dominant, I think, in the in the blend. But uh, spent a year in barrels, mm-hmm. half in bourbon and half in rum barrels, and that really helped tone down a little bit of that roasty flavor and mm-hmm. blend all three beers together. And now you might not even know it was three different beers. No, I don't think you would. I mean, I think they actually all they all kind of flow together. What, what was the source beer on yours? Fred, naturally. We try to use Fred as much as we can. Last year, we made Fred in, um, I think, three different countries, Japan, Belgium, and uh, England. See, and somehow making Fred in, in Japan, given Fred's side occupation with sake, seems very appropriate. The Japanese didn't feel that Fred was a formal enough name, so we called it Eckhart in Japan. And you probably can still get it. I think Shigakonin still has bottles of it that they're selling. Well, and so to your point, as, as we're drinking this one, uh, yeah, the very first thing I note is that roast, like you know, right right up front on the the very tip of the tongue, like that when that first hits the palate. But then it fades out, and you start to get those sort of red wine sort of sherry characteristics. You get that that little bit of oxidative note that's coming in, and I think it all softens it. But you still have a very bracing hop characteristic in the background, and I think if you don't have the oxidative notes up front, you'd get that big roast harsh hit that then would lead right into the into the hoppy thing in the back, and it wouldn't. It, it would feel like a, a like you downshifted hard, like you went from uh, fifth to third. Or yeah, fifth. I think time really helps this beer. Yeah. So I mean, I, yeah, I mean this this now has an actual smooth journey to it, as opposed to being you know something that would feel like. Like I, I encourage gears. people to age the beers once they've been packaged. And so I think this bottle will continue to improve and mature for the next 10 or 20 years. Oh, yeah. Well, and as I said uh, before uh, before we sat down to talk, uh, I know people who still have uh, great big old magnums of yours that are hanging out there that are now close to 20 years old. So uh, I'm waiting to dig into those because I think those will be interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's always a little bit scary when somebody comes up to me and says, I had one of your beers that was 20 years old, 
and I'm worried they're going to tell me something horrible, but usually it's always uh, how uh, pleasantly surprised they were. Well, and to the IPA point, I mean, thinking about like all the people who are out there pushing, you know, sort of these hazy IPAs that that at least common wisdom says you have you have to drink them fresh. And by fresh, we mean, hey, you know, get that get that into your gullet within like two months. Mm. You know, the fact that your beers are making it, you know, say 20 years, that's at least, you know, that's at least a nice thing. I mean, you're not talking about like worrying about time over the, the matter of somebody buying the beer and then forgetting about it in the fridge before the next football game. As a home brewer, I was inspired by Thomas Hardy's uh, and some of the Belgian Trappist ales mm-hmm. that had been around for a while. And I really saw the positive benefits from aging. Uh, the uh, culminator in Antwerp was a big inspiration for me and a place that had been saving beer since the 80s. And you could taste a brand new beer next to an aged beer mm-hmm. and uh, the specialness that happened. So we're very proud that we're one of the few breweries in the world that's offering vintage beers uh, on a regular basis on our menu. Yeah, it was good. you can buy them right here in the, in the taproom for taproom consumption. Yeah, uh, unfortunately for some people, you can't take them to go, but that's the reason that we still have them to offer. Yep. Um, and as the quantity of beer shrinks, then the price increases. Mm-hmm. Um, but we try to keep the beers for 20 years after they've been released. Well, and I was going to say, you, you mentioned the culminator, and culminator is awesome. We talked earlier about the stuffed sandwich, same thing there. That's in San Gabriel, California. Uh, I always love the fact that there are these few old school bars that are hanging on that that had that philosophy early to say, hey, let's save these things. This is actually something special. Yeah. Um, so it's always nice to get that as like a little treat. When I started the brewery, I imagined that everybody wanted to expose their customers to things that were unique and different. Uh, Sam and Marlene at the Stuff Sandwich were very special. Uh, mm-hmm. They really had a vision um, way ahead of its time. And uh, I've come to learn that there really are usually only a couple people in every state that have that feeling that, that money is not the most important thing. They really want to educate their customers and share special things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the people that really helped us along the way. Right. Well, and, and for listeners of the podcast, yes, I'm trying to get Marlene from the Stuff Sandwich on the podcast because I love her. I love what she's doing. And I think more people need to give her love too. So. Mm-hmm. Um, cheers to that. Yeah, cheers. Absolutely. Remember, people, if you have a if you have not only a brewery in your locale that's doing something special, but you have a publican that's doing something special, make sure you go give them some love because, I mean, frankly, until the recent rise of the tap room, most of the way stuff would work for brewers in a good way was to have a good publican, and I don't think there are enough that get rewarded for actually doing good things. Amen. Rant off. <laughs> So let's do some uh, quick breakdowns here uh, as we've gone through three of the beers. What are some of your favorite ingredients? Let's start with uh, what I think is obviously the backbone for you, which is malt. Mm-hmm. Like, like, what are some of your favorite malts? Well, we've used Gambrinus um, maltings grains since we started. Uh, we used to use the pale ale malt, uh, mm-hmm. but I switched to Pilsner malt probably 18 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I really love the way the Pilsner malt... Um, has a real clean flavor. It separates us a little bit from what everybody else is doing. And so we use Pilsner malt as the base malt for all the beers. So aiming for at least some base crispness, that, that base sort of grassy but clean break, as opposed to trying to build more character with like an ale malt, which is going to you know sort of 
pile up, particularly in the quantities that you probably use. Yeah, yeah. So even though it's more expensive, I think we get better flavors out of the Pilsner malt. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to if you're trying to get color, if you're trying to get you know an adjuncty type character or something else, what else do you look for? Well, we use uh, usually British um, grains, crystal malts, mm-hmm. uh, chocolate malts. We like German grains as well. Um, with Adam, we use both the German and uh, British grains. Uh, I like the British crystal better than an American crystal. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a home brewer, I was kind of educated that uh, domestic. Specialty malts are made from six-row barley, mm-hmm. and uh, imported grains are made from two-row barley. Uh, so I'm not really sure if that's a fact, but that's kind of what the way I. I think, think of that's it. changed over the years. I think almost everything in the U.S. now is two-row. <laughs> so now, when uh, what about yeast? What do you do for yeast? Well, we've been using uh, the Yeast Scottish strain, uh, 1728, since we started, mm-hmm. and we use that for all the beers uh, except for the Keller beer. Uh, and Beer Week this year, uh, and also Matsuri. So we made three beers with the lager yeast, two, one lager and two uh, steam beers. Ooh, nice. Yeah, but generally mean. we use that uh, Scottish yeast for everything, very attenuative, uh, flocculates very. great, so it's good for bottle conditioning. And very alcohol tolerant. Alcohol tolerant and temperature tolerant. Yeah. There are some times where uh, something happens and you're colder or warmer than you'd like to be, and the yeast is very flexible uh, as a home brewer uh, not all yeasts were that way some mm-hmm. yeasts are very particular yeah they are uh, i'm uh, people will know i'm a saison guy saison yeasts are very finicky you gotta you gotta know how to dance with them and now the last one of course is hops because i mean obviously even though people think of you as you know sort of malt for big big boozy type thing fred for instance has a lot of hop to it and it takes a lot of hops to balance out the sweetness in the big beers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we go through quite a bit of hops. Uh, we use only whole hops now. Uh, we probably have 15 different varieties of hops that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, and we like to mix it up. And so some beers will generally use the same hops. Uh, with Blue Dot, if you burp and taste hops, then we know we're doing the right thing. So it's more of an amount of hops thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the green dot, we're actually uh, dry hopping with more. Uh, blue dot is about two pounds per barrel, and the green dot is about four pounds per barrel. So, in other words, if you're not burping hops with the green dot, then something's obviously gone terribly wrong. Yeah, yeah, we usually don't have that problem with that. <laughs> okay, so any other brewing thoughts that you think that you want to share with people, like what they should know? Uh, well, I think your point about enjoying what you're doing is very important. Um, making beers that you envision that you'd like to drink, I think, is uh, necessarily more important than making uh, something you've already had. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really great hobby. It uh, takes a little bit of an investment in time, but sharing beer uh, is a very special thing. Well, I was going to say, I think that's the most important part to me is that I like making the beer. I like coming up with the, the stupid concepts for some of the beers I do. But my favorite part is when I can hand the beer to somebody else and watch them drink it and go, thumbs up. Or, you know, like get that enjoyment factor. I don't know why. Maybe it's the, the egotist. Maybe it's the, the I want to be Mozart uh, of a beer. <laughs> well, you know, beer really brings people together. And uh, there is very, there's something really special about bringing people together. And I think we need more of that in the world today. 
Well, and I was talking to a couple out in the, in the lobby or in the tap room. I was talking to a couple out in the tap room from North Carolina. And I had, I had mentioned, oh, you know, I'm sorry that I can't get the hair of the dog anymore in, in, in L.A. And they're like, oh, we live in, we live in North Carolina. We can't get it at all. <laughs> it, it, it's a, a special thing from the, for, for people who are dragging bottles back and we have beer tastings. Because, you know, it's a perfect sort of beer for, for beer tasting split. Yeah, and they're totally right. So, all right, so we've got all these beers. Oh, you know, I totally forgot. We, we totally forgot to talk about the one crazy thing. <laughs> the egg, huh? The egg. The egg named Richard Pryor. It's sitting over there in the corner. Tell us about Richard. You know, like I said, education is a, a important part of what I do. And I first saw these tanks used in wineries. And I thought that if they were effective for making wine, they might actually be good for making beer as well. Well, wait, let, let, let's tell people when we say the tank. It's a 4,500-pound uh, cement tank, uh, solid cement. There's no lining. Uh, it's rougher on the inside than it is on the outside. Uh, holds about 500 gallons of liquid. Um, we'll usually fill it up about halfway and ferment in it. Um, Do you rage in it? Or? When I first got the tank, I thought of it as a big barrel. Mm -hmm. And so my idea was that I was going to put beer in there for months at a time. But they pick up a lot of mineral character, and um, I don't really think extended aging is what the tank is all about. Okay, and I think I had some of the original, like the first stone beers, and mm -hmm. yeah, there was a, a real strong minerality to oh, them. Yeah, over the top. Yeah. And so what I think the real magic is of the tank is related to the shape. It's an egg shape. There are no corners, and so the yeast tends to stay in suspension longer, mm -hmm. and the beers ferment a little faster. I think we get smoother, rounder flavors than we get in our stainless steel fermenters. And so on a subtle basis, you can notice the difference. But for the average drinker, nobody's saying, hey, I really want more of that, that stone beer. Mm. Uh, so I think it's a novel thing. Uh, I'm really proud of the beers we're making out of it now. Usually the beer spends less than two weeks in the tank. So is there any oxygen transfer across the the stone or yeah i mean uh, definitely it's porous uh, there's micro oxygenation that happens uh is it less than a barrel uh, i assume i mean you, you're talking about loss no no not oh. just lost the oxygen across i mean, yeah i have no way of measuring that i don't, I don't really know um, i'd be really curious i know that is different than a barrel it's not a barrel um it's a but, curious creature and it's definitely a conversation piece. I've named all of the fermenters after comedians that made me laugh when I was a kid. And uh, I haven't put their names on the stainless steel tanks, but the, um, when I had the cement tank made, I thought Richard was a, a great one uh, for that tank. Yeah, there's lots, uh, lots of implications that one could go behind putting Richard Pryor on a stone tank. Yeah, our yeast brink is named George Carlin. <laughs> Beautiful. All the dirty things in one tank. <laughs> so, before we leave, I always have to ask, we've obviously talked a lot about beer. What non-beer thing are you obsessed by? Uh, well, you know, I love my dog. I'm definitely obsessed by dogs. Uh, and you're in good company here. I... Um feel like I get a lot of support from the dog, and uh, one of the reasons the brewery's called Hair of the Dog is, is because of the dog. Um, 
I'm obsessed with my family. You know, I really get a lot of satisfaction in uh, hanging out with my wife and kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the brewery was in its early stages and I wasn't working 40 hours a week, I was able to pick them up from school and cook them dinner and really spend some quality time with them. And uh, uh, that's what we love doing now. Uh, we're headed to Bamberg in August. We'll go brew with uh, Gonstaller mm-hmm. Brewing in Bamberg. And uh, Narke will come from Sweden. We'll do a three-way collaboration well, and one of your sons brews here. Yeah, Isaac is the head brewer here. Uh, and we're, we're all going to the uh, Beavertown Extravaganza in London afterwards. Oh, so nice. we're definitely, uh, beer is a good theme to have for a vacation. <laughs> well, that brings me back about the dog idea. So the English bulldog that's on the label, was that inspired one of your dogs? or I've never owned a dog like that. My graphic artist came up with about 10 different dogs when we first were talking about the concept. And this dog really had a kind of an honest, uh, easy-to-get-to-know kind of feeling, uh, not too scary, not too timid. And so uh, we've stuck with it the whole time. The headdress changes. Mm-hmm. You see the hakamachi on the uh, side-by-side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kanji character is for friendship. Um, it's great to be able to kind of change the beers a little bit. Uh, the pickle halibut. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, Fred, 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 Fred always rocking the pickle halibut. Yeah. So it's great to be able to pay a little homage to those people and keep a little humor in the whole thing. And by the way, if you don't know, pickle halibut, that's the, the German Kaiser helmet, the spike helmet. So the one that we all think of. Yeah, another one of Fred's hats was uh, kind of a Swedish mountain climbing hat that he wore a lot, and that's on the Otto label. Otto was Fred's actually real name. <laughs> well, there we go. During, after the... The Second World War, or the First World War, Otto Eckhart wasn't a very popular name. No. So the nuns at the orphanage ch- uh, named him Fred. Well, and uh, cheers to Fred, and cheers to Hair of the Dog. Alan, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. Thank you for rocking the Maltos Falcons anniversary shirt. Yeah, awesome sign. Uh, we are about to actually head out and go talk to some of the Maltos Falcons, because, hey, it's Homebrew Con. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And hey, guys, why aren't you here? <laughs> oh, well, too late. Man. I was so jealous that I was in a meeting all day that day and couldn't join you there. Yeah, it, it's your loss. But, I mean, Alan has always been great. He's always super generous. It's absolutely hysterical to see that huge, huge malt silo and tiny, tiny little beer kettle in the, in this place. And now, of course, he's got racks and racks of barrels everywhere to do fun things with and giant Easter eggs made of, of cement. But, I mean, it's just a great brewery. If you have your If you have his beer available to you, uh, you should really try it. It is kind of a special drinking beer. It's not your everyday drinker, uh, but the flavors in them are so, so well done. I was absolutely blown away by that Maya beer because that one sounded like that should have been a train wreck <laughs> and, it, and it just worked. And, and that's, what's amazing to me, man. I remember, you know, the first time I saw Fred, for instance, and there were like 11 malts and 13 hops or something like that. And I went, you know, it was early when I was brewing, so I tended to believe that it was going to work. And these days I look at it and go, man, it takes a lot of guts to do something like that and make it work. And it does. And that's the thing about Alan. He makes these extraordinary beers that reflect his personality. And no matter how weird you think they're going to be, they all work. Yes, indeed. So get yourself some hair of the dog. Enjoy it. And really stop by the, the pub. He is always... He is always just a friendly presence, and he's always just a great ambassador for good beer. All righty. We're going to get out of here now, and when we come back, we will be wrapping up the show with a quick tip and something other. So stick around. We're going to be right back. 
Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. Welcome back. This is where we normally do some Q&A, but we want to remind you that the next show, number 72, is our all Q&A show, so we're saving up for that. Please send your questions to podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and we will get them in the show. You can also call 626-765-1AL and leave us a voicemail there with your question. All right, so, yeah, Denny. Yes, sir. You got a quick tip? I do. I do have a quick tip. This quick tip comes out of my recent Kiwi brewing session that we were just talking about. The other thing we were doing in our cultural exchange that day, besides brewing beer, was that we were making pies. And when you're in New Zealand, pie means a little hand-sized meat pie kind of thing. And they are incredible. So uh, basically, I got the, uh, the wort into the kettle turned to a couple friends of mine and said, okay, here, you take it. We're going to go make pies. So uh, Carl Summerfield from uh, New Zealand and I headed into the house. We made these pies, uh, went back out when we were done, just in time to get to the chilling part, uh, chilled the beer down, actually remembered to throw in the finishing hops, took a gravity reading. We were like 10 points or so low on gravity. And what do you do? You say, Okay, fine. Because what I want to let you know is when you're brewing with other people, it's about the other people more than it's about the beer. And I have learned through the years that when I brew with other people, I just accept whatever happens with the beer and have a wonderful time during the day uh, enjoying my friends that are there. Uh, One of the people looked at me as we finished up and said, boy, that's nothing like my brew day. And I I had had to admit that it's nothing like my normal brew day either. I normally brew alone. I'm very focused and, and conscious of what I'm doing in the beer. But again, when you're brewing with other people, 
the brew day is about being with other people and not the beer. And uh, in this one, it looks like we just lucked out and we're going to get a great beer out of it anyway. There you go. That you will never be able to reproduce. That's right. The horrors. But yes, I agree. Sometimes... Sometimes the brewing is just the excuse for the party. Yeah, that's right, man. And it was a, it was a wonderful day that I will remember for the rest of my life. So no matter how that beer turns out, it's going to be a good beer and a good day. And of course, now we have to leave you with something other than beer. Of course. We've been talking about beer all day. So it's my turn. And I'm going to tell you guys about a brand new, to me, series that I just discovered. It's called the Gentleman Bastards series. And it's a, right now it's a set of three books. It's supposed to be seven books, but the author is sort of running into uh, problems. He's talked uh, very publicly about suffering from depression and you know how that got in the way of his writing. But the three books that are out so far, these books are so good and so fun that I bought the first book, which is called The Lies of Locke Lamora, on, well, a week ago from when we were recording this. I am now halfway through book number three. <laughs> no wonder that nothing else has been getting done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, but no, the, the, the lies of Lockmore, uh, this is just a great book. It's one of these books. It, it takes place in a fantasy world because of course, but you know, sort of strange artifacts and everything there is still there and still very kind of, you know, sort of late Renaissance type feel to everything and a little steampunk, but also the group of people that's falling around the people who are your protagonists are a group of excellently trained thieves that call themselves the gentleman bastards. So it's part murder mystery. It's part heist. It's part high fantasy. It's just a really interesting amalgamation of a bunch of things. And what's cool about the series is each, each book moves to basically a new location in this world and offers these guys a different set of challenges and a different set of skills to express. So it's just a lot of fun. You know, for some reason, it sounds like it could be a Sean Connery movie. Yeah, you know, actually, Sean Connery back in the day, totally. <laughs> I, I, I could totally see that. And But it's it's high fantasy. It's fun. Uh, the lead character, Locke Lamora, is a raging smartass. And, you know, one of those sort of anti-hero thief characters who, you know, won't bend the knee to any person who thinks that they're better than he is. But it's just really really fun. And I, like I said, it's a quick read. I've been through all three books and each of the books is like 600 pages. I'm now halfway through book, uh, book three right now in a week. So that gives you an idea of how much fun it is to read. <laughs> wow. That's amazing, man. Sounds pretty good. Actually. I'll, uh, I'll wait for the movie. Uh, there you go. So the Gen- gentleman bastard series, starting with the lies of Locke Lamora uh, by Scott Lynch. Go read it. All right. And I guess it's time to wrap things up now. So thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums, including the AHA forum. Drew is usually found on the homebrewing subreddit or the Slack homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, or experiments, or we rant and rave, and we get a lot of that too, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to email each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE and get those questions in for our all Q&A show. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. 
or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.